0: Good morning, church, and I'll add my happy Father's Day as well to you, all you dads out there. Glad that you've chosen to come and to worship with us this morning. Happy Father's Day to you guys. I was thinking about how all good companies have a motto that they live by, and the best of companies have a type of motto that not only are they able to inspire their employees with. But they're also able to use that to inspire their customers. Let me give you an example. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can praise them, disagree with them, quote them, disbelieve them, glorify or vilify them about the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They invent, they imagine, they heal, they explore, they create, they inspire. They push the human race forward. While some see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who actually do. You guys know that from Apple. And you can say what you want. For five, close to five decades now, Apple has been preaching and living that motto. They're one of the world's most profitable corporations. And they've changed most of our lives by the technologies that they've created. They're killing it with their motto. But at the end of the day, I'm not really concerned. Like, Apple might have great campaign ads, but at the end of the day, who cares? As a Christian, I'm mostly concerned with what is God's motto? What is God's motto for living a purposeful, satisfying, purposeful life for his glory? What is God's motto? What is he preaching? What is he calling his people to? That's what, as Christians, we're concerned with most. And for the next several weeks, church, that's exactly what we're going to be looking at. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has been called by many his motto or his manifesto, what he calls his, his followers to live by. What he calls, what he inspires, what Christians have been inspired to live for centuries now. So let's dig in on this motto, if you will, of Jesus Christ, this manifesto that he calls his followers to in Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses this morning. In the next several weeks, we're going to be going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus, I pray that as we begin this series this morning, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that you would use your words to form in our lives the very things that you call us to. Do that, we pray, so that others may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would say that one of the central, if not the most central teaching of the entire Sermon on the Mount is this, very simply put, true happiness comes from living in a right relationship with God. We're going to see this time and time again throughout this sermon. True happiness, a life of true happiness, of deep abiding joy comes from living in this world in a right relationship With God. Now here's the tricky thing. I think a lot of people and even a lot of us Christians get that confused. Like what exactly is a right relationship with God? So when I say Sermon on the Mount, no doubt there's some of you who are automatically just feeling guilty right away. Like we haven't even barely got into the Sermon on the Mount and you're already aware because you know what's written here. You know the radical demands that Jesus calls his followers to, and you're feeling guilty and condemned, and we haven't even gotten started yet. You can relate to this. Sometimes when you're doing really well with the Lord, you're like, sermon on the mount. Bring it. Like, I'm ready for some radical. I'm doing good with the Lord right now. It's about time someone's preaching the radical demands of discipleship. Bring it on. I'm ready for radical. Radical. But you also know this. I'm struggling with some sin, and uh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I'm really concerned about myself because I'm stuck here in this sin, and I don't even know if I'm really following Jesus. The self-sufficient church are going to have a really hard time with the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't understand grace... If you don't get the main character of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time with this series. There's also this tricky part. Some of us think of grace in this way. We we really believe, and we've heard Kenny's sermons the last three weeks, that, that Christianity is all of grace, and praise God, it is. Right? God has chosen you. If you are a Christian, God has chosen you. He has lavished his love upon you. He he has made you his forever and nothing's going to take you out of his hand. Praise God. That's true. But sometimes if we're not careful, we can see grace in this way. Well, God loves me just the way that I am. He knows what he got when he chose me. And so I'm not going to trouble myself too much with living according to the Bible because I'm under grace. This is a religion of grace. The trouble with that is that when Jesus, before he ascended, he said, go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded them. So Jesus apparently expected his followers to actually do what he said to them to do. So we're going to have a really hard time as well if we approach the sermon on the mount thinking, I'm covered by grace and it really doesn't matter how I live my life. The sermon corrects us both. And look at how Matthew does this, okay? Look at the beginning before you even get to the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what he says in verses 23 and 24. It says, He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons epileptics and paralytics and he healed them these are the crowds that are gathered to hear G- jesus preach this sermon they're the outcasts they're the poor they're the rich cuz you know what rich people have a lot of pains and afflictions as well they they just don't present them as clearly All the diseased, all the demon-possessed, all the societal outcasts, they're all gathered here, and they're all gathered here because the one with God's power and authority has brought them to himself. The one who came to preach the good news of the gospel and to heal with God's power has brought them all to himself. Jesus is the main character of Matthew's whole entire gospel. So Jesus is the main character of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't get Jesus... You won't get the Sermon on the Mount. And simply put, living in his kingdom means that you live under the authority of his kingship and you live in the power of his kingship. You live in his power under his authority. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And that's what this sermon is all about. How do we actually do that? How do we as followers of Jesus live under his authority in his power in our lives? That's what we're going to be looking at the next seven weeks but as i said true happiness is found in a right relationship with god it's found under the authority of jesus living in the power of jesus that's where we find true happiness and that's what jesus is preaching right here The structure that I'm going to use this morning, because this is how I think the first section opens up, is Jesus is teaching his disciples, how? How do we actually do that? How do we live in the kingdom of God? How do we experience true happiness in a right relationship with God? How do we do that? Well, Jesus says it's by living a life of character and a life of influence. A life of character and a life of influence. That's what we see here in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. First, the character. Jesus begins his sermon with all of these statements of blessing, and that's, that's where I'm getting that word happiness from. And I'm using happiness because it's accessible. You guys can get inside of that really quickly. True happiness is found in a right relationship with God. Jesus is, is calling people to this, but he's using this word blessed, which means much more than just happiness, like a happy feeling in life. To understand where Jesus is getting this from, we look to other places in Scripture. Right? So we hear in Psalm 1 that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the place of scoffers, who doesn't sit with sinners. That's, that's the blessed man. Or in Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So blessing has to do with somebody who has found favor with God. That the happy person is somebody who's living in a relationship with God in which God's approval is upon that person. That's the happy person. That's the blessed person. So that's the person that Jesus has in mind as he's speaking all of these terms of blessing. And what he goes on to describe is the character of those men and women who are living in this approved relationship under God. Those are the blessed ones. What's the character of those who live under the blessing of God? Well, he, he says state, uh, eight statements here, and I want to I try to break them down this way. The first four statements in this section has to do primarily with a disciple's relationship with God. The second four statements have to do with a relationship between disciples and others. So first, there's a vertical Plane, And then there's a horizontal plane. So we'll look at those in that way. So the first four have to do with a disciple's relationship with God. What does it look like to live in this relationship under God's approval and find true happiness? Jesus speaks in terms of being poor in spirit, of being mournful, meek, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness or in spirit this has nothing to do with material wealth and again when we think of Jesus teaching Jesus is not just pulling things out of the air he's teaching the bible he's teaching the old testament and so when he's talking about poverty of spirit he has in mind things like isaiah 57 where it says that God dwells in the high and the holy place, but also with him or her who is contrite of a lowly or a poor spirit. Or God says in Isaiah 66 that he looks to those who are humble, that he trembles at his word, those who are of a contrite or a low or a poor spirit. So that's what Jesus is picking up on here. This idea of poverty of spirit means to live humbly before God. Now, one of the things that we're all really good at is comparing ourselves with one another. We do this all the time, right? How do we line up? How do we measure up with her or him? How do I compare? That's not what the poor in spirit is concerned about. The poor in spirit see themselves in the presence of God alone. And in the presence of God alone, they realize there's no comparison here. I have no moral or spiritual currency by which I can trade and find favor and earn or buy my way into God's presence. I've got nothing here. I'm completely bankrupt. There's no comparison between you and I, God. I'm poor in spirit. I'm broke. I have nothing to offer you. That's what the poor in spirit sees him or herself as. Do you see yourself that way before God? Stemming from that poverty of spirit is a mourning, which is the emotional experience of being poor in spirit. It's not only that you see yourself as a sinner, you are grieved over your sin. Like it actually causes you to mourn and to weep and to lament. And not only for your own sin, you think about the evil of the world and the sin in the world and the brokenness that's out there. You think about the way that your sin personally has affected other people. You think about the way that your sin caused Jesus to suffer and die on a cross. And you see how there's this pervasive effect of sin in the world. And it causes you to weep and to mourn. Have you wept over your sin? Do you weep over the sin that's present in our world? Jesus describes the one in a right relationship with God as one who is meek. One who is meek. To be meek is to fully trust And completely be satisfied and content in everything that God has done to order your life. So you're not striving to get what you think is coming to you. You're not striving to advance over other people. In fact, you're so content in what God has given to you that you actually celebrate the advancement of other people. Because you're not concerned with justifying or putting yourself forward. You're mainly concerned that God's will is done in your life and that his kingdom is advancing. That's what the meek people do. And that is motivated by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I want God's will to be done in this world. I want God's will to be done in my life. So much so that I'm comparing it to the way that I hunger and thirst for food and water. Just like I do food and water, I hunger and thirst, God, for your will to be done in my life and in this world. Now it's quiet in here. And I can imagine, because I had this experience myself, that you're feeling somewhat overwhelmed. Let me just say something. That's okay. If you are feeling overwhelmed at the fact that you're not that humble, and you're more excited about happy hour and wing night than you are about the will of God, and you wouldn't describe yourself as a very meek person right now, then the Sermon on the Mount is actually accomplishing its purpose. Jesus is emptying us because it's only as we're filled with him and his spirit do we actually embody these very character traits. Do you see that? The the person who responds to the Sermon on the Mount as, I've got this going, like I'm good with this. Or, you know what, this is nonsense. All this talk about sin and like letting people advance before me, that's nonsense. Those are the type of people that should be quaking right now because the sermon is not having its intended effect. The sermon Jesus is supposed to, Jesus is trying to humble us so that he can fill us. We don't have these things apart from him. It's that he, he creates us, he creates in us the very character traits that he wants in us by preaching to us his word. When we see that we've got nothing, when we see that we're empty, it's then that he's able to fill us and motivate us to live the way he wants us to live. Does that make sense? We should be feeling a little overwhelmed. This is God's word. These are his standards. And only by grace and only by the spirit's power in us can we live the way that our king Jesus has called us to live. These are not These are not natural traits, right? It's not like, well, I'm kind of a meek guy. like That's just my disposition and my personality. No. Nobody's going to do this on their own. This is a spiritual characteristic. It requires the Holy Spirit in order for us to live this way. Here's how I think this is supposed to work. So the other day, I was at my daughter's swim meet, and I see all these little boys and girls on the starting block going like this. They think they're Michael Phelps. <laughs> now, how odd would it have been if I walked down and said to them, what are you doing? Like, you know you're not going to be an Olympic athlete, right? Like, you're, there's no way you're going to jump into this pool and swim like Michael Phelps. You know that, right? Well, th- here's a real motivational speech, right? No, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was great. It brought joy to my heart because I see on them, those kids, this look of anticipation and excitement. And when I do this, I'm going to get in there, and I think I am going to swim as fast as Michael Phelps. They don't think, well, I'll never be him, so I'll never even try to swim like him. They don't think that. Christian, you're not called to live or swim like Michael Phelps. You are called to live like Jesus Christ. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not supposed to get us to say, I can never do this, so I'm not even going to try. The Sermon on the Mount is supposed to motivate us. Nobody, nobody was as mournful over sin as Jesus Nobody hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness like Christ. He was the one that was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He wept over sin. He was the most humble individual that's ever lived. And so by knowing Jesus and looking at him and beholding his glory, that's how we're motivated. Jesus, I can never be like you, but would you fill me with your spirit so these characteristics can be part of my life? I'm empty. Would you fill me? Would you motivate me to live the way you do? Not because I think I'm going to reach perfection. We can't. But because he has been perfect for us, we strive to live like him. Does that make sense? That's how the Sermon on the Mount motivates us. It motivates us by the model and the grace and the power of Christ living in us. And when we're living that way, you see all these promises are ours to claim. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. He comforts us. Jesus is the only one I know that when I weep for sin, he's the only one that can make me happy in that moment. Like, there's a simultaneous experience of, I know this sin is horrendous and I'm sorry for it, but at the same time, I know true joy right now because I know that your blood cleanses me from this sin and eventually your blood will cleanse the world and create a new heavens and a new earth and you tell me that I'm actually going to be there. That gives me joy. That gives me peace. That's what I'm saying. Living in a right relationship with God is the pathway to true happiness. Jesus is the one that gives it to us. Okay, so that's the first four. I'm going to move through the second four a little bit more quickly and get it to the influence. So the first four relate to God, a relationship with God, and I said the second four statements relate to our relationship with others. What are these character traits? They're merciful. These people living in a right relationship with God are merciful, which just means that Excuse me, when we see people that are in misery and in pain, we show mercy to them. We show love to them. Because in some way we see ourselves in them. We were miserable. We were in pain. We were suffering in some capacity, naturally or physically, and God showed mercy to us. So we show mercy to other people. He says we're pure in heart, which means that we're not hypocrites. We know that we live in the presence of God and he's not fooled by our playing church. It means that we don't try to act more spiritual than we really are. It means that before God and before other people, this is who I am. Like what you see is what you get. I'm struggling. Here's how God's working in my life. I'm not putting on airs. Jesus will have a lot to say about people who practice their righteousness on the, on, to get other people's approval. The pure in heart don't do that. They live before God and before others honestly. We're peacemakers. We seek to embody Jesus who made it his aim to make peace between God and man. So wherever possible, we're trying to reconcile relationships. Wherever possible, we're trying to speak the gospel in order to reconcile man with God. We're peacemakers. And we're willing to do all these things even if it means persecution. We're willing to do what God's called us to do, to live as Jesus calls us to live, and we're not shocked when we're treated the same way Jesus was. We know we're going to be hated because they first hated him. And instead of returning insult for insult, we bless. We pray for our enemies. We don't retaliate. See, this is crazy, but so many times, church, I think I and you live seeking true happiness and it eludes us it escapes us we're finding that it's not satisfying the things that we pursue don't truly satisfy Jesus says you know what I do have a way I have a pursuit by which if you will take me at my word and pursue the things that I've called you to pursue there you will find true happiness there you will find true joy it's found in a right relationship with God It's found under my authority. It's found living in my power. That's where true happiness comes from. So first he tells us about this character, the character of those living in his kingdom, the character of those living in a right relationship with God. Second, I said we're looking at influence. So first character, then influence. After he addresses the character of the disciple, he uses two metaphors that are essentially getting at the same point. He's talking about salt, and he's talking about light. Salt and light. Now, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have refrigerators, right? So instead of sticking it in the fridge, they stuck their food in salt. That's what preserved it. That's what kept it fresh and kept it from rotting and stinking. So what Jesus is getting at here is your life, as you live out the character traits of the Beatitudes here in these first few verses, you're like salt in a decaying world. The effect of sin is that it causes decay and rot, just like Kenny was saying about that Mountain Dew mouth. That's what sin does in the world. It brings decay and rot. It makes circumstances stink in our lives. But by living as men and women who are humble, by living as men and women who are weak, by by living as people who are seeking God's righteousness and his kingdom on earth, we're holding off that decay in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools. we're, we're, We're acting like a preservative in our society because we're doing good works for God's glory. We're like salt in the earth that's preserving the goodness that God has created. The same is true for light. He's talking to people who can't just flip on a light switch. I was trying to think about a time when I understood, like, pitch dark. Like, what does that really mean? Like, literally can't see my hand in front of my face. And the memory that came to mind is when in college, we used to do night hiking in the Adirondacks. And so we would leave at dusk to summit the mountain by midnight. And on the top, it was awesome. Turned off our headlights and looked up at the stars, and it was great. But on the ascent or descent, any time that your headlight went off, like, it was literally pitch dark dark like I could not see in front of me and if you've ever been in pitch dark you know it's disorienting like it's not a fun place to be like what else is out there that's what Jesus is getting at here when when the evil is so pervasive in the world just a little bit of light sometimes makes it bearable just a little headlamp just just a flick of a match and all of a sudden there's okay like I can see at least where I need to go That's what Christians are supposed to be. In a world that's consumed with darkness, our good works, our character, our moral influence is supposed to make the darkness bearable. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, I'm excited because next week, Kevin King from IP International Project is going to come and preach at Jesse and Monica's commissioning service. And he's actually going to unpack this issue of light, that it's not just our works, but it's also our words. And so I'm going to hold off on unpacking that any further, but I'm really excited to see how he ties this into our series next week. But here's what I think we need to hear. See if you can relate to this. When you think of your influence as a Christian, do you ever think, well, I don't want to be like, too judgmental or Bible-thumpy, so I'm just going to kind of be cool, and I'm going to blend in, and I'm going to act like my friends act. And then you have this experience. Uh, I think they're actually influencing me more than I'm influencing them. Have you, can you relate to that at all? What Jesus is saying is, listen, you're not normal. And you're not going to experience true joy or influence in the world by blending in. I've called you to come out of those things. I've actually called you to live differently. I've called you to live in a right relationship with me. And as you live that way and show forth the glory of God, you will experience true joy and people around you will be influenced by your lifestyle. We're not gonna influence the world by conforming to the world, by looking just like our friends and neighbors who aren't following Jesus. We're not gonna influence them that way. We're influencing them as by the power of Christ in us, living according to his law, his rule, that's how we're going to influence the world around us. And that's where true joy is ultimately found. That's where it's found, friends. I've been thinking a lot, of, again, about that, that phrase, that, that motto that Apple put out, very effective ad campaign. But I've been thinking about it in light of this, in light of of Jesus' manifesto, in light of his call to his disciples to live in the kingdom of God among the kings of men. What does it look like? And so I just kind of hijacked their ad. And maybe it goes something like this. Here's to the blessed ones, the humble, the merciful, the peacemakers, the round pegs and the square holes. The ones who do see things differently. They're fond of Christ's rule of love. They have respect for the downtrodden. You can praise them, disagree with them, quote them, disbelieve them, glorify or vilify. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They fail. They confess. They forgive. They love. They worship. They yearn to see God's kingdom push forward. While some see them as the crazy ones, God sees them as children. Maybe they do seem crazy. But the people who are crazy enough to believe that Christ can change the world are the very ones that God uses to do just that. Church, let that be our motto. Let's live over these next several weeks. Let's yearn to see God's kingdom come in our lives. And if we're going to do that, we need God's help. And so that's why I've asked Jesse to come this morning and lead us as a church, in prayer that God would help us over these next several weeks to really hear his word and to embody it in our lives. We're not going to do that apart from grace, which is why we're going to pray together right now. Thanks, Jesse.